Amen. Well, thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much. God, um, uh, well, Paul called the Philippian church to live a life that was worthy of the gospel. Remember that context is why he's writing. And what he lets us know is that if there's any chance of us doing that, any chance for the Philippian church to be able to do that is that they have to learn to live in unity with one another. And that's not an easy thing to be able to do. Apparently, there was, this church was struggling with that very thing. But they had to learn to live in unity. They had to learn to have the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind, which means they had to come and be unified around one purpose. Now, the command that Paul is giving or was giving here in, in this book was written to a relatively small um, impoverished, um, persecuted church that existed some 2,000 years ago. But even though the command was made for them specifically, the application in this command continues for every church that would would exist after this this particular time. In other words, even though it was written in a place far, far away a long, long time ago, catch this, the commands here for unity in a church and amongst God's people is, is relevant and is binding to us today as it was for 2,000 years ago. Let me, let me maybe just put it in one little bit of different way. If Paul was going to write us a letter here at Celebration Baptist Church, and he was going to instruct us on the teaching of unity, all right, how to be unified within our church and our families and our friends and, our, and, and within our marriage, he would say nothing more and nothing less than what he writes right here in Philippians chapter 2. So if you're in a relationship, maybe something's going on with you and someone else here in the church or with your spouse or with your children or whatever it is, and that's not a place of unity, but you're experiencing disunity and you're experiencing pain and difficulty and hardship and everything, it would do us all well to heed the words that Paul is instructing us with here in Philippians chapter 2. Well, the way that uh, Paul began was really by unpacking, we saw this last week, by really letting us know what our motivation needed to be for seeking unity. All right, and, and, and you know, we could say the reason we want to be unified is because we don't want to live with stress in the home and chaos in the home. And that's an okay uh, reason or motivation to want unity. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But Paul says there has to be a higher motivation. And the reason is, is because you could do all that Paul says and still not enjoy unity within the home, but that doesn't mean that we jettison the instructions that the Word of God is giving us. If, it, if we don't feel like it's working, we do it in order to praise and glorify God. So the motivation for us to seek unity is, as far as it is possible for us with all men is because it demonstrates we are to give out the same mercy and grace to other people that we've been shown by God. God unified himself with us by extending grace and mercy, and it would be wrong for you and I to do anything else because of the treasure troves of grace and mercy in which we have received. The second motivation that we talked about was this, is simply that we want to be a joy to other people's life. I can almost guarantee that if you are an argumentative, divisive, highly opinionated individual that really is rubbed the wrong way every single time you talk with somebody else, I can almost but guarantee that you're not a joy and anyone else's.
else's life. So we want to be a joy. So for that reason, we need to be able to seek unity with everyone around us. And so that was our motivation. Well, today we want to look at the means. Did I offend you? Oh, that's, oh, sorry. That was the band. Okay, sorry. Uh, And they were leaving. They were like, I'm not going to hear this again. This was awful the first time. So um, anyway, so good luck. And so, um, so I don't even know where I was. So we were somewhere in here digging down. Why did I freelance? I'm off. Anyway, so what we want to do today is we want to talk about the means of unity. Basically, that's just another way of saying the ways of unity. We know what we're supposed to be motivated by, but how do we actually do it? What is it that we need to do, or more specifically, what is it that we don't do in order to make sure that within our marriage, within our church, within these relationships, that we're able to not only bring about but maintain unity amongst those that we love? And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us two negative commands followed by a positive command. In other words, two, don't do these things, and one, do this thing. And so we want to look at those in the short bit of time that we have this morning. So let's look beginning, uh, first of all, in verse 3. First thing we see is in order to maintain unity, we must do nothing from selfishness. We must do nothing from selfishness. Now, note this in verse 3. Paul writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The word rivalry is another way of just saying uh, selfishness, and I can't, I can't keep saying the word rivalry. I'll get my, my, my tongue tied, but I think a clear word really there is selfishness. When we talk about selfishness, we're talking about an attitude. We're talking about an attitude by which we evaluate situations and circumstances in terms and in light of how it will ultimately benefit me. So no matter what relationship you're in, Mac, you may determine whether you're going to be in a relationship and whether that is beneficial to you. Uh, you may, you may ha- be in certain circumstances and you're trying to jockey and try to work and try to manipulate that situation so that whatever happens, it happens to your ultimate benefit. Now, selfishness actually goes beyond that. It's not just looking out for your own, just trying to benefit from every circumstance. It actually goes beyond that because it's actually willing to have other people suffer in order for you to be happy to get what it is that you want. In other words, it's the attitude that says, I want what I want, and it doesn't matter who gets hurt in the process. I was reading one gentleman this last week, and he basically said that really selfishness is much like gambling. You want to win so badly, and part of the joy of winning is that you know that somebody else must lose. That's the idea behind selfishness within our heart. And I've got bad news. The bad news is uh, we're all selfish. Now, that may be a news flash to you, uh, but we are. It's actually very foundational of sin coming into the world was this sin of selfishness. We see Satan when he rebels against God. It is, there's a root of selfishness there. He wants the glory of God. We see it with Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. They choose to do what is right. They determine in their situation the best thing for them to do is to, is to eat of the fruit, and they do it with no inclination, no thought of how this was going to disrupt their relationship with God at all. And so we see that we, we are all selfish, but we get it honestly, right? I mean, it comes from our parents, blame our parents. And every single one of us that are born are born with selfish hearts. Can, can I hear an amen on that? Yes? It's not loud enough. By the time I'm done, I'll show you're selfish. And so uh, that's, that's my rule, all right? And so, so what happens is as children, we see this. Do we, do we not? It, it amazes me the parents that sit there and go, oh, look how precious, They're so pure and so wonderful and so sinless. I don't know whose kids they have. 
right? I mean, that is not the way it has worked for, for my, my, my wife and I. A couple years ago, uh, we were, we, or a couple, years, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting in a restaurant eating, minding my own business, and there was a little boy who was demonstrating his selfishness there. And basically what he was doing is he said, I want ice cream. And mom said, no, baby, we can't have any ice cream, but we'll get ice cream at home. We got ice cream at home, lots of stuff that you can, you know, put on, all kinds of good stuff. No, I want ice cream now and everything. And so I was sitting there going, this is interesting how this is going to work out. And so uh, he goes, I want it now. And then he finally said, actually pulled this card, I will hold my breath until you give me ice cream. <gasps> like this. And, and, and the mom begins to panic. And so the mom is just kind of like, no, honey, 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 don't breathe, honey, honey. You need oxygen. Breathe, breathe. Okay, you can have the ice cream. And I'm sitting there going, man, little Spencer, buddy, you better be glad that I'm not your daddy. Right? I mean, I mean, you better be glad because I would have ordered ice cream and invited everyone to watch as you pass out, right? As we all eat ice cream. And so there's this selfishness there. That's why I'll never get the father of the year award. But, um, but there's that selfishness. There's, but we never grow out of that selfishness. There's this always in our flesh. It, we're always kind of, we always have to fight against it. You know, with, with couples, when they go into marriage counseling, and, and it's an important thing to be able to do, but one of the things that a counselor often will do is say, so what seems to be the problem here? And they'll ask both. And, and both the husband and the wife, basically, to sum up everything is, they're the problem, right? They're, or he's the problem, or she's the problem. They're, all right, they're doing this back and forth. And so there's a buddy of mine who is a counselor, and this is what he does for a living. And he says, Mike, he goes, it's interesting because I will ask that question, listen to all they have to say. But of all the hundreds, close to even a thousand couples that I have interviewed and asked that question, not a one of them has ever gotten the question right. Never gotten the answer right. He goes, it's always about somebody else. And then he goes, when they're done, I finally say to them, I finally say, would you like to know how the Bible answers what your problem is? And at this point, he goes, I take him to James chapter four and verse three. There, James is writing to a group of people that apparently aren't able to be able to get along and continue to fight with each other. And he writes to them and he asks them the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And of course, when they hear that, what are they doing? They're pointing at the other people. But, but, but James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What he says to them, he goes, listen, I want to let you know from the get-go, and this will determine if, we, if you want to come back and meet anymore, but the Bible says the reason your problem within your marriage is that both of you are unbelievably selfish. And if you can't find a way to be unified, if you continue to determine that the only way you'll be happy and be able to be unified is if the other person does exactly what you want them to do in order to benefit you with no thought of how that's going to impact them, he goes, unity is going to be impossible. Now, do you want to continue on? It's amazing he can make a living off counseling, to be honest with you, because you think that they would have been long gone at that particular point. But this is true. Listen, if we are demanding of people to do a certain thing, act a certain way, be able to meet certain needs, and that is the contingency on us getting along and being unified, then guess what? Two people in the same exact uh, relationship doing that, they'll never be able to be unified one with another. And so we find this in the Word of God. So Paul says here this, he commands them. He says, so therefore do nothing from selfishness. Now what does nothing cover? Covers everything, right? Right? He goes, listen, do nothing, anything that you do, whatever time of day is it, no matter what reason, because we love to do this game, you know, the game of, yeah, but I I know it sounds selfish, but yeah, yeah, I know I'm doing this, but I'm doing it because she won't, 
You know, that's the selfishness that he's talking about. Don't do anything. Let none of your actions be done for your own selfishness. There's selfishness sometimes, maybe in a marriage right now, and usually that selfishness usually uh, circles somewhere around uh, the, the, the time that is spent and the money that is spent. One wants money for one thing. They want time for one thing. The other one wants money and time for the other thing. And then they begin to butt heads between each other. He says, do nothing. Now, to do nothing is not only speaking of actions, it's speaking of attitudes as well. So we're not even to have an attitude. You're not even to be thinking in your mind ways to be able to get your way, even if you don't feel like you're acting on it. Because what will it do? It ultimately brings about a spirit of, 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 of jealousy, resentment, anger, and bitterness. He says, so do nothing out of these things. So here, here's what's interesting. And I, I want to I tell you real quickly, I, I struggled all week with putting the sermon together. And here's why. I don't think there's one of you that came to the service today that would sit there and go, well, tell me, Mike, I, you're not telling me anything I don't know. I think we would all agree with that. But there is a huge difference between knowing something intellectually and submitting to it with a heartfelt submission. This is the problem in the midst of relationships, churches, families, is that they know they're not to be selfish, but they actually putting into practice and dying to self is where they struggle so much. So guess what? Whatever relationship you're in, jettison, push off, do nothing from selfishness. Here's the second thing. Second thing is we're to do nothing from conceit. He says conceit. Now, the idea there is, is whereas selfishness is, is really about getting my way, conceit is really about getting my glory. Okay, so conceit stems from having an excessively favorable opinion, favorable opinion of oneself, his intellect, and his own abilities. Another way to be able to say it is it's, you're big-headed. That's what conceit is. You think a lot of yourself. I think a lot of myself. Think pretty smart, pretty talented, pretty gifted. And what happens is you begin to build yourself up and you begin to push people down. That's what conceit is. You, you, don't, you appreciate your own opinions, but you don't appreciate the opinions of other people. Let me, let me give you kind of a, a, a ways to identify these conceited people. All right, because I know I see it in people, all right? I know what they look like. Uh, the first way that you know that they're conceited is, the, uh, is, is, is that they have an uncanny ability to recognize and point out shortcomings and sin of other people, All right, right? It's kind of what I just did, all right? And so, so they have this, I mean, it's like they're gifted. And have you ever known somebody, and you're like, they, you always thought they were a pleasant person? You've known them for like 10 years, and you go, oh, they're so sweet, and the other person goes, Arr! and you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, it, they're sweet, but, blah, 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 blah. the next thing you know, is like, I don't like that person either. They're horrible. Look at them. They're terrible. And they've never done anything to you. But what happens is they have this uncanny ability to be able to see the wrong in everybody else. But the crazy part is they never seem to be able to see it in themselves. In fact, not only are they not able to see it in themselves, they're not able to see that their biggest problem is the very, the very thing that they're condemning somebody else for. I mean, they could sit back there and go, oh, that person is judge- so judgmental. In saying that person is so judgmental, you're being judgmental. Do you see how that all works? So that's one way that we identify if we are being a conceited individual. Here's another way, is that we usually have an opinion about everything, even though we know little or nothing about anything. It's okay to have opinions about stuff, but it's not okay to have opinions to where you're going to fight over your opinion. Are, are, are you with me on that? Look, if you're married, you got a difference of opinion. Would you agree? Okay, what, what's going on here? 
Are, are, are we convicted or is this, what, what's going on here? I, I'm looking, if you were just like, yeah, iPhone, not really looking at the Bible. Okay, I, I don't know what's going on. Look, is this, are, are you in the same type of marriage I am? My wife and I completely disagree on just all, anything that has to do with an opinion we disagree with. Okay, she wants, she wants, well, I'm not even going to go through it. Because if I do, it's judgmental, and I'm going to make myself sound right and her wrong. Okay, that's, that's the sinfulness in me. And so the, the, the idea is that you look at other people, and, and you have these uh, uh, opinions. I feel so bad for medical doctors. Okay, um, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor. And so, so what, what happened medical doctors? I feel so bad for these individuals. They go to school forever. Like, how, how long have you been in school? 18 years. 18 years? Yeah, I've been in school for 18 years. You're like, wow, that's a... Long time. And so, and you mean including like elementary three? No, 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 no. That's beside. That was after uh, graduation from high school. Man, that's, that's a lot. And so this person, here's this person. They graduate from Cornell, and then they go and they on to medical school, and they go from John Hopkins, and here they are with all of these degrees, and, and they go in, and they have all the latest advancement and all the tools to be able to find out and diagnose what exactly is wrong with you and what's happening within your life. And you sit there, and they go, sir, after all these studies, all this board of doctors at Mayo Clinic believe that this is kind of what's wrong with you. And then you sit there and go, I don't think you're right. I, I think you might be off on this. Well, sir, what, what makes you think that we're off on this? Well, last night I was looking on the internet. <laughs> and I was on the internet, and, and, and I took about five or ten minutes right before I went to bed, and I looked, and it says that I have this. And so now stop and think through this for a moment, okay? You have a guy who's been in school forever, basically been impoverished all his life, getting through all of this stuff, has all the technology on his side. He makes this intelligent decision. You were on the internet for 10 minutes, and you got your degree from Wikipedia, and there you are going, I disagree with you, okay? And so what happens is they're just argumentative. There's only one way to be able to do things. That's another thing that we can recognize when we're conceited, is they seem to know how everything is to be done and are quick to tell people when they're not doing it the correct way, right? Uh, we know how it's supposed to be done, and you ain't doing it the right way. I'll give you another example. Uh, in the previous church that I tanked all by myself in just eight months, <laughs> drove that sucker right into the ground, started with 100, ended with 40, that all, all by myself. So when I was there and we did that all by myself, uh, what we ultimately found was that there were, <clears throat> I was preaching, and I felt, like, I felt like people need to come to faith in Christ, uh, there just wasn't a whole lot of demonstration of fruit that was consistent with repentance. So I just began to preach every, every week, repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. Here's the gospel, here's the gospel. And I just kept preaching it, going, sooner or later it's going to go over. One gentleman that I, I never saw any fruit in, and, and I figured he need, either needs to get saved or there needs to be an attitude of, of, of humility in him or, or repentance one day after a service. Now, this was a service where we had all the youth like take part. Remember those? The youth were singing. The youth were passing out the offering plates. They were welcoming, all that kind of stuff. And now everyone's like, we love the young people. And you know those kind of churches. Okay, and, and it's good. Well, damn, why don't we do that? Anyway, and so we, we had this. And, uh, and afterwards, he's like, I need to see you. It's extremely important. And he was passionate. And I was like, this is the first time I've seen him like this. And I go, buddy, let, let, let's go right now. Honey, you know, take the child, whatever. I'll, I'll be there when I get home. We go into my office. I take out my little notebook. I take out my box. And I sit there and say, what is it? What is on your heart? And I am hoping for God speaking to me. He's drawing me. I need to repent. I need to get right. And here's exactly what he says. He says, those young people who took up the offering did it wrong. They took up the offering wrong. I have been an usher for 40 years. I know what it is that I'm doing. 
there's only one way to really be able to collect the offering in the way that it should collect it. You were to take the offering plate and you're hold it high and tight, high and tight, right up there, right underneath the armpit, high and tight like that. And you need to come down like this. They're all coming down all loosey-goosey with it. And there, you need to high and tight. We need to stop. We need to call them. We need to instruct them right now. Now, have you ever been speechless? Yes? Then have you ever been without speech? Right? That's even further. I was without speech. I didn't really know ultimately what to say. I mean, because come on. Stop and think about it for a minute. Really? There's a right way and a wrong way to be able to do this. I mean, I could see if they're wearing it as top hats and they're coming down the aisle or they're throwing it like Frisbees. I get it. But if you just somehow manage to be able to get it down there and pass it, I mean, I think it's okay. We're okay. I mean, I mean, literally, I begin to ask him the question, is there an usher college where you go and you be able to learn all this and you have to get degrees in this and studies on this? Is, is there, and I begin to actually ask him this, I begin to say, is there scientific studies about this, which basically says that if you hold it for long enough in your armpit and warm enough, that when you pass it, people give more money? I mean, this is ridiculous, but what does it demonstrate? It demonstrates conceit. What it demonstrates is, is that it's okay to have an opinion, but when we take in our opinions and our preferences and we begin to exalt them and hold them as truth and hold other people to that bar, there's no way for unity to be able to occur. And it stems from both what? Both from this selfish heart as well as this conceit. So Galatians 6.3 warns us of self-deception. He says, if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. You cannot have unity with these two things. So what does he tell us to do? Put them off. Get rid of them. Get rid of selfishness. Get rid of conceit. Now, what does he do? We have to replace it with something. Now, the third point. Wow, we're on our third point already. This is a great Mother's Day. All right, number three. In order to maintain unity, we must do everything with Humility, with humility. So selfishness and conceit are things that we have to put off, but Paul says there's something that we have to put on that's humility. Paul writes, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Humility is just the opposite of selfishness and conceit, just the opposite. Where selfishness and conceit is always looking after me. It's always thinking highly of me, always thinking highly of my opinions. And you looking at other people and you're looking down, humility turns that thing right upside down. Humility sits there and says, you know what? Other people are actually more important than myself. And I'm not going to look after just my own interests, but I'm going to look after the interests of others. Do you see how that's completely flip-flop? And it's only through that humility, the attitude of humility living out, that it's possible to have uh, uh, um, uh, unity in a marriage, in a church, or in any other Christian relationship. Do we understand that? It has to be based on humility. You know what the problem with that statement is? It's hard to define humility. It's hard to find it. It's hard to get it. It's hard to obtain it, but it's even hard to define it. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When we're talking about humility, what I'm not talking about is feigned or false humility. We all know what that's like, right? To sit there and we look humble on the outside. Like, I'm going to look humble. I'm just going to, I don't know how you do it, but maybe, maybe if I stand a certain way, maybe I'll look humble. And we're all looking for that humble time. But on the outside, you're trying to convey humility. On the inside, you know that you have a self-righteous heart. Selfish heart. You think big of yourself. Yeah, are, 
you guys with, you, you at least know people like that? Raise your hand if you oh, at least know people like that. And so what we need to understand is, listen, that's not real humility. That's just conceit well disguised. We are, can we all at least admit, I'll admit for myself, I won't do it for you. I am a professional sinner. I am no novice. I know what I'm doing, and I know how to do it. I've seen novices at sin, and I just shake my head at them. <laughs> I mean, I've seen, they just don't know what they're doing. Those people that go around, and you actually know, they're actually talking as though they're something, and, and they're conveying that they want people to praise them for who they are. They're such rookies. They, they don't know that that's not the way you do it. People will not give you praise if you're trying to get it from them. You've got to hide the way you do this. I mean, what, you, you've got to make it sound like it's somebody else's idea, not yours. You've got to somehow find a way to be humble so low that, that other people want to be able to prop you up. You know what I'm getting at? You do, don't you? No, I'm just kidding. All right. Just, I'm just kidding. I love you. So anyway, so, so we knew this. Now, I'm not talking about being self-deprecating, right? I mean, that's, that's, I kind of like that. When a guy gets up there and he goes, you know, um, you know, ugly, you know, and everyone's like, ah, yeah. and what they're doing is they're basically just making fun of themselves, of their shortfalls. That's okay. That could actually be a demonstration of a healthy view of yourself, that you can laugh at your shortcomings. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that, that intense kind of downing yourself so that somebody else feels the compulsion to be able to lift you up. It's kind of that whole, you know, I'm a terrible person. Oh, no, you're not. You're a good person. You're really, really, really good. No, 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 I'm not. I'm a stinky winky. No, you're not a stinky winky. You're a precious child of God and everything. And, and so outside you're saying, no, no. Inside they're going, yes, yes, bring it to me. Give me more. This is how we professionals work. And what I'm saying is we just have to understand it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's a heart issue. It's within us. It's, it's the flesh God has created us new, and he's given us new desires and new impulses. But please understand, you are still very much in danger of your flesh pulling you into that garbage. And so we, we, we see this. And so humility is not that, but it's also not a pathetic lack of self-esteem. Sometimes you're around somebody that you're just like, I, I can't even be around this anymore. They're like, they can't do anything right. They're just sitting there and go, hey, listen, you know, I, I, I'm a sinner, and I'm awful, and I'm terrible, and I sing bad, and even my greatest things are garbage, just like Paul says, like dirty, filthy rags, and everything. And you try to encourage them a little bit, and you're like, no, dude, look, you, you walk good. No, I got a limp. Can you see the limp? And, I mean, you're just around him, and you're like, bro, you've got it. No, this is, it's okay. We need more of us to understand the depth of our depravity. Listen. We need more of us, all of us, need to understand that when God saved us, he saved us from the absolute bottom of the barrel he scraped us from. We were not good in any imaginable way. He saved us when we are fully and completely sinful, hating God, raising our hand at God, rebelling against him, and worthy of his wrath. But he saved us through his grace. So here's what I want you to understand. It's okay to be able to see your faults. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to sink so low that you forget the height of his mercy and grace in you. Just because you are unworthy doesn't mean that you're worth less. You are worth, you you have value because Jesus Christ purchased you with his precious blood. That makes you valuable. So how do we do it? We balance that out with a healthy view. We sit back and go, I know that there is no good thing in me. In myself, in my flesh, apart from Christ, there is nothing good in me. I know that I am 
carnal. I know sometimes that I think the wrong things. I feel the wrong things. I, I fail in a multitude of different ways. I come up short consistently. Anybody else vibing this? However, with all of this, God saved me by his grace and by his mercy and was good to me and made me new. And I know this, I am not near the person I ought to be, but I'm not near the person I was. And so all of those things have changed. Let's not talk so down to ourselves that we somehow eliminate the grace and the mercy of God that's at work within us. Let us understand, I am deserving of nothing. I could do nothing, but I am able to think right, do right, love right, and be selfless and be humble. But it's not because of anything in me. It's because of the grace and the mercy that God extends to me. That's what helps us. You know, I sit back and I think to myself, what is it that keeps us from true humility? I think it's two things. I think number one, first, it's, it's not being in the word of God. It's not being in the word of God. When people have a high view of themselves, I'm like, are you reading the same Bible that I'm reading? I mean, you know, a person sits there can read a whole book, go, yeah, I just got done the book, going to the next book. I get like through the first sentence and the Holy Spirit's beat me like a Mexican pinata, right? Go, I can't even get past the thus. You know what I mean? I'm already falling to this. You understand what I mean? It's, it's, it's clear. The Bible says that it's like a mirror. It's reflecting what is there. And much, many of the times what's there is not real good. And that's the purpose is to draw you into dependence on him, into repentance with him. So being in the word. Here, it, the, the Bible tells us, it says, that word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. It's not only, sometimes we lack humility because we're not in the word. The second reason that we do not find ourselves having a humble heart is because the word of God is not in us. And this is what I try to say at the very beginning is we can fill up our minds all we want and come to the church and say, man, we preach the word of God and you can pile it all in. But unless it takes root in your heart, unless, you, unless after the service you sit there and go, I am that man I am the one he was talking with that is selfish. I am the one who is conceited in myself. I see the way that it impacts my wife. I see the way that it impacts my children. I see, I feel it in me. I feel it in, I feel the weight of it. I, even when I'm saying something different on the outside, I feel the manipulation in my own heart of me trying to get my way and be selfish and be conceited. I, I don't know if anybody else identifies that, but we need to come to that. And here's what we need to understand. We need to go beyond that by sitting there going, this is me. I need Jesus. I need his grace. I need his forgiveness. I need his power. I need all of these things. And this is where we need to be. The, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2 says this, for good, for good news came to us just as it did to them. But the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who, listen, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. This, in, in the context, he's saying other people have heard the same gospel we have, but it did them no good because they did not receive it by faith. He's talking about salvation. Well, guess what? Same thing can happen every week with believers that come into the house of God. They can come in, they can hear the word of God, they can stick it in their mind, but it does no radical transformation in their heart because they do not receive it by faith to act it out and live it out. And so here's, this is what we have. And so Paul sits there again and even verse four, it's not only looking at people greater than ourselves. Look at, look at verse four. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word look there is to regard as your aim. You are focused on the interest of others. Now, notice what he says in the beginning there. He doesn't say, don't look after your own interests. What does he say? 
Let each of you look not only after your own interests. So here's an important rule for you. You need to look after yourself. You need to get some sleep. You need to eat. You need to go get some exercise every once in a while. Maybe as you're running to get a donut. I don't know. Just maybe, you know, know, multitask. I don't know. But whatever it is, you need to do that. It's okay to sit there and go, I need this break. For years, and I'm still struggling with it, for years, I'm just being honest with you because you guys can identify this. For years, I felt guilty every time I took a break from the pulpit on Sunday. Felt guilty. Can barely, could uh, struggle with it, struggle with it, struggle with it. I talked with a man one time. He just basically told me, he says, listen, many of your people know how healthy you need to be. And you cannot be at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You cannot do it. You cannot be on that. You cannot, just like you would not allow them to be able to do it. They go, you've got to. And here's the idea. And, and, and here's the attitude. Sometimes we're like, I'd rather burn out than freeze out. And one gentleman said one time, but either way, you're out. Whether you're sitting there working and working and going and going and doing and doing, there's got to be a time that you make sure that you're taking care of yourself. It's okay. It's okay. In fact, it's biblical. In fact, the Word of God says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, says this, Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I love the book, and, and I love David Platt's book, Radical, right? Everyone's like, yeah, Radical! But boy, did I have a mess to clean up after that book, all right? Because most of the people are just like, dude, I'm selling it all! And I'm like, okay, great, fantastic. want you to do that. If God's calling you to do that, do you hear me? If God's calling you to do that, do that, sell it all. But let's make a plan of now how we're going to take care of you. Now that you don't have a job and you don't have anything else, that's really the context of what was happening in, 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 to the Thessalonians. They thought Jesus was coming back. So everybody quit their jobs and gave everything away. And then they're all sitting around going, I'm kind of hungry. I need food. Got any food? No, I got any food. We, we gave it all away and we quit. You know, do you see what I'm saying? It, it's, it's okay. But here's what he's saying. What he's saying is you take the same R, the regard of your aim needs to be not only for your need, but for those who are around you, for those who are around you. I love being in a church that's so gracious, and you are immensely gracious. I don't, I don't say that as empty platitudes. I, I can say that with all conviction in the world, that, that we have such giving people. And, and there's a lot, some in here and some in the first service, that they'll just come up and say, hey, Pastor Mike, if you ever know somebody in need, just let me know. And I would like to at least have the first opportunity to attempt to be able to meet that need. That's, that's awesome, is it not? And you sit there and go, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Thank you so much. That means so, so much. But what I love even more than that, so I'm not demeaning, diminishing that, but what's even greater is when, when we find out a need, maybe in a small group or something like that, somebody, and, and we find out a need, and we all in the in office, how are we going to meet that? How, what, what are we going to do? And we all begin to scurry around. And when we go to contact the person, the person sits there and says, Pastor Mike, you guys don't have to do anything. My small group or people in the church has already come and met this need. Man, there's nothing greater than that. And it's not because we don't have to work. It's because the church is being the church. To, To be the church and to be unified as a church, it takes not you just looking after your own needs and coming and saying, this is what I need or this is what I want. It's for you to become and having a aim and a focus on the needs of those who are around you and to do everything you can to be able to seek that need. 
So how do we look at this? I gave you all these illustrations of what not to do. Now, where's the illustration of what to do? Well, let me give you a couple illustrations of myself that really demonstrate humility. No, right? We would lose everything at that particular point. And plus, I can't think of any, all right, to be honest with you. And so, so, so we can't think. And I kept thinking, I kept looking up, and everything seems to fall short. And the reason is, is because I know the gospel. And Paul chooses not to use any other kind of example of humility except for the gospel. And we're going to unpack this next week. If you don't like theology, then don't come next week. But we're going to look at the height and the depth and the breadth of what Christ does here in Philippians chapter 2. But look now what he says, verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's the example of humility. And what's interesting, I, I love what F.F. Bruce says here. He says, if Christ's example is to be followed, and that's what Paul's leading us to do, is follow his example in humility. He said, then it is better for us to be concerned about others' rights in our duties more than our own rights and other people's duties. You see what he means by that? What he means is you and I oftentimes in our selfishness and conceit can be disruptive and argumentative and divisive because we have certain rights. It's the right to be happy, right, for whatever it is. We have all of these rights and we get angry with other people because they're not t- using the responsibility to make sure that they fulfill my rights. He's saying to follow Jesus Christ is to do just the opposite. To follow, Jesus, the, rights, to follow the example of Jesus Christ is to look after the rights of other people and to pay very close attention to our own responsibilities, what Christ did on the cross. And that's where we'll be next week and unpack that and see just how low did he go How far did Christ humble himself to save you and to save me? It's it's the gospel. It's the gospel. So here's what I want to let you know. If you don't know Christ, if you have no inkling of how low you are in your sin, of how sin has radically ripped from you and changed you and and cause you to lose much of the image of God, if you don't understand how that sin is impeding on you and how the wrath of God is storing up for you, if you don't understand how far Christ went to humble himself for you, to save you by grace and mercy alone, then you'll have no real ability to be able to live out that same reality in your relationships around you. So first things first, are you born again? Have you repented and have you believed? We're going to have an invitation. I'm going to ask our, our worship leader to come at this time. And we're going to sing. But you've got to work this out. You've got to work this out. I said that this is not a Mother's Day sermon, but in many ways it really is, isn't it? It really is because there are some moms who are even here that are sitting there and they're praying in their heart all the way through this. Is dear God, please let my husband, please let my kids hear this message. If I know most moms... They're probably sitting there going, God, I'm selfish and I'm conceited. It's probably where they are. But the truth of the matter is, is we need to be unified through what Paul tells us here. 
If any of us have selfishness, right now is the time to begin to abandon that. If there's any conceit in your heart where you're thinking yourself better than the one that you're married to or in the church or whatever it is, you need to abandon that. You need to embrace humility by thinking rightly of yourself that you are a sinner saved by grace and what is good in you is because of the grace that God has given. Now take that, bend it outwards to those that are around you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. We thank